rear window as Pokemon Snap. Welcome to the Glasshouse Game Show, recorded in London at Glasshouse Brick Lane. I'm Alex B. Joined by Shay in the studio. Hi. CG remotely. Hello. And Louise in Glasgow, I believe. Hello. Yes, Special I am guest. indeed. Um, anything you lot have been up to? It's Halloween after all. The spookiest day of the year. Allegedly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are there other spooky days that could compete? Let's not I get into the darkest timeline here. Yeah, yes, November 3rd, right? Sorry to take it there. Sorry. <laughs> But it's true. Well, I'd like a doom, doom, doom. <laughs> Get in post. Yeah. Uh, is trick-or-treating allowed? Are we? Is that a thing that's going to happen in quarantine? I don't think. Um, they banned it in Scotland. Oh, they said no. They said you're not allowed to do it. And also, interestingly, in Scotland, we don't call it trick-or-treating. We call it guising. So you don a disguise oh. and you go guising. And when you go guising, you have to say a poem or a joke. And that's the only way that you can get your stuff. You can't just say trick-or-treat and then get it. So that's you need so to interesting. Uh, so I used to have to learn loads of weird jokes and limericks to go out guising. But Nicola Sturgeon has said no to all of that. So no fun in Scotland. <laughs> oh, no. no jokes. For the best. No poems. When, when no I was um, growing up, because I was, I was born in Spain originally, and people don't really celebrate Halloween, at least back in the day. I think now it's been Americanized quite a bit. But my parents used to force the neighbors to do it. So like there would be nobody celebrating Halloween except like three or four people in the same apartment complex. <laughs> They'd just take us around and be like, okay, they're giving us chorizo and stuff. Like, is this what you give people <laughs> for Halloween? How <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I keep? <laughs> hey, I was actually curious though. Were there? Did you like have top five jokes that got you the most candy? Mm, I think they were always. I think by that point they'd probably heard the same six jokes <laughs> from fifty kids, and by the time you got to them, they're just like, "Here, have some fruit, have a clementine." This <laughs> joke like... was passed down to me from my father, who passed it down from his father. <laughs> like, well, guess what, kid? It's not original. <laughs> um, last week. On our GHG show, which I guess it'd be just earlier this week by mm -hmm. the time you see this, but we talked about spooky games, our favorites, our firsts, and I thought it'd be a bit more interesting even if we went a bit further, as Halloween is still upon us, to dive into more of the elements and psychology even of horror, not just games, but across all media as they all sort of influence each other. And that's why you're here, Louise. Um, can you give us a little background on, well, on your background? So I'm a games and entertainment and tech journalist. Um, I've played a lot of games, but I've also watched an awful lot of horror movies. And it started out as just the kind of fun thing that I would do. And then suddenly, because I was constantly watching horror movies and it it was something that even goes back to when I was at university, I did film and media and I did philosophy. And one of my philosophy modules was aesthetics. And within that was the paradox of horror, which I find really interesting, which is the idea that horror is something that's intrinsically unpleasant, but we all want to watch horror. Therefore, why do we enjoy something unpleasant? So I've always been quite fascinated with that side of things. And the more horror I watch and the more horror I read about and the more horror I play, the different ways it kind of all interweaves. So I'm quite, I'm quite fascinated by 
why we want to be scared and also trying to make myself scared and enjoying it at the same time. Yeah. So that's kind of where I come from. We're definitely going to get into that. So in our episode last week, we kind of in a way concluded that two of the most important elements of horror were, well, and horror of games staying scary on, you know, re repeat plays, but great sound design or even just sound design in general, having a conceptualized sound design and disempowerment of the player. And I was wondering, does disempowerment of the player as an aspect of horror, does that translate to other media? Can you disempower a film viewer? Has anybody felt disempowered while watching a film? That's an interesting one, because I mean, a lot, I'm, I'm surely not as well read as Luis, but I, I think about, there's a lot of, in sort of aesthetics and film theory stuff about you know, the experience of watching a film as a voyeur you know, and there's a lot of like playing with that aspect of being a voyeur watching in the first place. Yeah. So I wonder what that means, disempowering versus, you know, maybe playing with the experience of that voyeurism, which maybe you know, I've never seen it, but maybe that's where, you know, the Blair Witch and all that stuff, the yeah. excitement around it, it actually feels like it's on a camera. But yeah, I mean, games have sort of the assumption that you're not, well, you have some power. You're never fully disempowered. Otherwise, it's not a game. You still have some control, some agency, which makes it a game. And in film, the situation is entirely out of your control, aside from if you're carrying, holding a remote control that you can pause it. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we're going to get into Bandersnatch. I feel like, <laughs> um, as far as like you are not controlling, yeah, you aren't controlling the story that's unfolding you. It's already predetermined, which is the same case for games, but there is still some agency there. But I think you brought up Blair, which is actually a fair point, CG, because that game to me is kind of the rejection of what was the pinnacle of horror in the late 90s of like glossy teen horror films that had 50 million, 100 million dollar budgets um, with, you know, Freddie Prince Jr. or <laughs> other favorites. Come on, Shay, you've got to have some there. Sure. <laughs> Does his theory um, hold up, Louise? Is he, is he telling the yeah. truth? I think what's really interesting about the idea of disempowerment of a viewer is why we... The way that horror works is it messes with our expectations in film form and even in television form. So if a film works on our already preconceived expectations of what we will experience, you know, we started watching something like Blair Witch and that is right. You know, we hadn't seen anything like Blair Witch before, so we didn't know what the rules were. So we were brought into these loops of camping and noises in the dark and we had never, we didn't know what those noises were. They didn't, they could have been anything, but the fact that we didn't know what they were was what was scary. And I think constant rule breaking, especially from horror filmmakers, is how you become less powerful as a viewer. Because normally, if you know what you're going in to watch, say we've seen a lot of Conjuring movies now. So what we're going to expect is we're going to expect a lot of jump scares. Uh, we're going to expect lots of, of different things that James Wan does with his cameras. We're going to expect big cavernous houses that look like the Amityville. And we're going to expect certain things. But when someone like Ari Aster then comes in and makes something like Hereditary, which has no rules compared to what we've seen before, or Midsummer, suddenly he's played with our expectations. We had no idea what was coming. What was coming was disturbing, and we haven't got a, a sort of measuring point for that. So we automatically feel more afraid because we are being played like a fiddle by a horror filmmaker and we cannot do anything about it other than go in the next time and think i know what you're going to do and if they're clever they'll turn it upside down again so it's a constant game of cat and mouse so i think that's what's really interesting sort of like removing all 
you can't have any preconceived notions or expectations and you're going in blind versus versus the sort of cookie cutter stuff that mm. had become so popular. Um, I mean, with does, like, does that mean that, sorry, no, go ahead. Uh, does that mean, uh, Luis, then that, because we were debating this as well when we were talking about games, we were like, what is a horror game? And the more we talked about it, we were sort of like, a lot of what is, it's hard to define it as a specific genre as opposed to an approach to genre, right? So like there's a platforming game that is done in a horror way or there's a first person shooter and stuff like that. From what the way you're describing it, which is, it seems to me like a, a compelling definition, does, would you think that then what makes horror horror is a, it's kind of like, it's always becoming like if it, if there's ever the expectation, it's already kind of falling into B movie or B territory. So in order to really be what it is, it's like it's always other than itself, as corny as yeah. that sounds or something. I think that's a really interesting sort of ideology of horror, that it's always got to be something that's undermining what you expect. But then at the same time, I think it's really important to think of horror as I just finished uh, Fright Fest just this weekend and there was 45 horror movies there and one of them was a horror movie called cyst which was about a giant cyst that appeared in someone's back that then became a monster and it was full of pus and it was quite disgusting and um i made a ton of pus jokes about things being impossible but that was that still counted as a horror and so did uh another movie that i watched yesterday called slacks which was about an evil pair of trousers yes. now that sounds like complete trash but actually slacks was really interesting it was directed uh, directed by a woman in canada and it was about you know the kind of um hipster-esque ideas that we have of fashion and it was about turning that upside down and despite the fact it was about a killer pair of trousers it had a lot of things to say about consumerism and society and expectations of women and the streaming culture so Again, that falls into horror, not entirely scary horror, but it still sits there. But then we also lump into that going into the dark and feeling, you know, uh, uh, sort of as if we don't have any defenses. So I think horror as a genre is enormous. But I suppose what you're saying there is in order to feel afraid that it constantly needs to evolve for us to reach a new level of fear. Where you lose maybe the suspension of disbelief that you've built up from all your previous expectations, yeah. like... I still know you did last summer five doesn't really have the same impact as no. as scream i guess yeah it's interesting because I'll, I'll stop with these are my the only like two hot takes i have because i'm not because <laughs> i'm not <laughs> well read in this stuff but uh just because we were having this episode i was trying to be like okay let me look around like let me like learn a little bit about what how people talk about horror and stuff and there's an author i really like mark fisher who has a book called the weird and the eerie I wasn't able to finish it, but I just read a few chapters and he had this thing that I thought was interesting where he's discussing Lovecraft and, you know, beyond the usual problems with Lovecraft as a person and the way his fiction can lean into like eugenics and shit. One of the things I thought was interesting is when he was talking about the weird as a concept of like, as opposed to things that are purely alien, a lot of what he's sort of like rereading or looking into this Lovecraftian kind of stuff is that what makes it weird is how much of it is familiar actually. So then there's that kind of like double movement, I guess, of trying to, you know, affect your expectations. But then it's not just like in space and it's a bunch of creatures you've never seen before and stuff. That stuff can come later, but it's very grounded in that New England setting and, you know, things that are supposed to be real, but they're just kind of, what's that word? Uh, uncanny, you know, it's slightly. Uncanny un valley. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. unheimlich thing, slightly off. And even with the Blair Witch thing, I mean, again, I'm too scared to see it. So 
I don't know, but I know it's filmed in, you know, woods and stuff. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's like some, it's familiar territory, like where I grew up in the East Coast. <laughs> it looked very much like the hey, area I've seen I the grew forest up before. In. This is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, it's relatable, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. right. It's the fact if you can if you can put yourself in that situation, I suppose that's another way that horror can work, is that if you can if you can react in that certain way. Because it's that interesting thing of um I spoke to the BBC, BBFC at one point, um, the ratings board about why we weren't watching as many 18s anymore, because there just aren't as many 18s, loads of them come up as 15s. And I spoke about the different ways that they rate movies. And basically the, the way that they decide is with tone. So initially, I think it was Snow White. You know how there's that bit in Snow White where she runs into the woods and it's really, really scary for a cartoon? Well, that was actually, you couldn't see Snow White unless you were, I think over the age of 16 at one point, because they couldn't work out how to rate fear. So now they rate it as in, how do I feel when this person does it? How do I feel? Do I feel like I relate to this person? So if, if it's a children's movie, if it's a kid going into it somewhere and feeling scared, then they will think, oh, this is menace. That comes under menace. But if they're reacting, if there's a ghost and they're like, I don't give a fuck, then they'll rate it lower because of that. So it's about that relatability. And that's how we experience sort of direct fear. Because if we can put ourselves in those shoes, then the worse we feel. I think I that's 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 a big thing for me and probably why I don't watch as much horror is because like all of the really gory stuff that my friends would want to go and see, I'm like, well, you know, what are the chances of me being chopped up like on this? Well, actually there's a woman in London is probably quite high. <laughs> um, but like it, in general, it, it, you know, I'm not scared of that stuff I'm scared of. And this is something that I just thought was like brilliant with like Get Out and like us is, mm. is touching on these themes of racism. That's something I've dealt with my whole life. And like, those situations are always like much more chilling and you know seeing seeing that like very relatable thing like on the big screen and articulated in this way that I hadn't seen before I was like oh man like that's the stuff that kind of sticks with me a little bit more and yeah I think I think there is power in having more relatable relatable horror is that is that a thing maybe maybe it should be yeah I mean if yeah. you can convince somebody that this could be real or that this could happen that feels well, even disempowering itself because you no longer can put up the wall of, well, this is just a movie or mm. this is, can only ever be just a movie. That would never happen. As soon as it feels like relatable or potentially true, potentially real, then it's, yeah, it goes to another spine tingling mm. <laughs> uh, level. But then can I ask you, Shay, regarding that, since that isn't your style, but can you think of any games or anything that has like piqued your interest in that way, or does that do we, or does that not exist yet? Because again, this is a genre I scrupulously avoid in games as well. <laughs> if it's like adventure gaming, I'll kind of consider it. But if any real horror game, I'm too afraid to play. So. Have we seen the Jordan peeling of horror <laughs> games? I don't right. think. I don't think so. Not yet. Maybe mm. that's too like very narrow margins. But I guess, well, that's fair segue though, as far as like games. Games are horror games more influenced or reliant on on the uh, paving the way of films for influence, mm. where are films trickling downwards to games and not the other way around? Are are horror games too reliant on the influence of films? Uh, I mean, it's sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that's a good question because I think <laughs> I think a lot of other genres in games do that, like mm -hmm. you know these you know these big like open world set pieces that rely on you know emulating the feeling of a movie but i don't maybe not specifically in horror i don't think like obviously you've got like the um the super massive games that are yeah. literally like you know playable movies um 
of those, I think only one of them is pretty good. But anyway. <laughs> what do you think? So I assume you're talking about un- Until Dawn. I am indeed. As a super massive, <laughs> mm-hmm. super fan. <laughs> um, I mean, is there something that makes that game special particularly? Uh, or particularly in relation with its relationship with um, cinema? I think because it was like the first of its kind, right? It, it very much capitalized on like the the sort of slasher films of the '90s, in that it was like this these this group of teenagers who were you know doing these things. So it had that relatable element, but then it also had the relatable element of it emulating those sorts of films. And then, yeah, like I was saying um, in last week's episode, is the way that I played it is I sat around with a whole bunch of friends and we sort of made decisions on it. And it was the first time that I was like, right, okay, like you know when you're watching, you have that stereotypical thing of what a horror film and people are like no don't don't go in there but you know you actually made that decision yourself so it was like empowering the player in a way that i hadn't seen with a horror game before um and being able to share that experience i think added a whole other layer of of fun to it but we should do a a version of that game where all of us has to play only one character Mm. and (laughs) you have to stick with your you play as that character and stick with all your decisions i could do that even if it even if it goes against another character (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that's what would happen in in real life yeah. right see that's what they tried to do in man of medan but whether or not the execution was there like that's literally what they tried to do in that they encourage you to play that multiplayer uh, the execution of it is yeah, their movie night mode was dubious yeah. not good um but, yeah. but i guess it's it is interesting what what you're saying alex because i think i i take your point almost more so in like mainstream games because if you think about if you think about something like The Last of Us, you know, which isn't, it's not like billed as a horror game per yeah. se, but like it clearly draws just first of all from the zombie kind of like tradition, but yeah, also tropes just, and themes w- and yeah, stuff. but cinematically like the thing that people are seem to be drawn to in those games and, and you know, what I've been told, because I also haven't played them, is that the set pieces, you know, the, as you're walking through the ambiance, like hearing a clicker in the distance, all those things that goes through to kind of making I guess it's like a very, very exquisite, almost like pseudo VR experience, which, you know, we, we talked about Resident Evil 7 as well in VR. Like, it's all about, you know, building that ambiance. But I wonder if what you're asking is a good question as well of like, what are the strengths of games as a medium that aren't being taken advantage of in terms of like player input and stuff? Because I even remember one thing I didn't share on the episode was the moment in Metal Gear Solid 1 when Psychomantis first, uh, you can't you can't beat him. And then you realize that he's reading your mind through the because your controller is plugged into the first port, and then you have to unplug it and put it in the second port to beat him. And that's just a minor moment. I mean, you could probably write a whole book on that when you're nine years old. (laughs) No, but that's what I mean. That when games and I I brought up Eternal Darkness, like um, games that I I was interested in playing and challenging my own fears in, was mostly because they were doing something that felt like new with games as a medium of like make you know making me feel even the the end of mgs2 when it starts to like make you feel like you've died even when you haven't died and the colonel's talking to you as like a robot and stuff so i i wonder if i don't know actually but i wonder if um, taking advantage of that you talk about disempowerment like making the player feel um, this is all coming to undertale man the end of undertale you know playing with the feeling of like your save being erased and stuff like that so anyway, uh, I'm just thinking of like mechanical ways you can play with the player's feeling of actually being in the game. Yeah, that's interesting as far as... Because games have so much more potential for, for having different ways to make you feel scared because of the input and agency that they can give you. But, you know, we're still so... It seems like we're still so reliant 
certainly on AAA at least. I don't want to put it on to where I haven't played a ton of indie horror, so maybe I'm completely wrong mm. here. But as far as like the kind of themes and tropes and even just the fact that of jump scares being so prevalent <laughs> in, in horror games that there's not that boundary pushing that we're seeing yet in horror games. What, what are Question some of your mark? favorites, please? <laughs> I think what's really interesting about um, horror games at the moment are I played Amnesia Rebirth. Um, I spent 12 hours last weekend playing it in two sittings. <laughs> and um, what I actually thought and was reminded of is quite interesting in a horror game that what it has to actually do is still want to keep you moving. So you have to be afraid. You have to want to continue to progress. And you want to see what comes next, despite the fact that that's horrific. And I think that's a really interesting balance that that horror games have to keep. Meanwhile, when you actually just watch a movie, you go, don't go in there, but I actually do go in there because that's how the movie's going to continue. Yeah. But if you are just left standing in a corridor, unable to move because you're so afraid, but in order to finish the game, you have to progress. I think that's a really interesting thing that developers need to play with. It sounds like and it was something that, And it was something that in Rebirth, um, they actually played really interestingly with it because I hate playing horror games where I'm really interested in the narrative, I'm really interested in being afraid, but I also don't like dying because that's really frustrating and rubbish. So I hate dying because then it plumps you back at the same bit. You have to do it again. Inevitably, you die again and you're suddenly like, well, that's me completely out of this and I'm furious and I want a cup of tea. And I think what Amnesia did with that to try and fix that, to try and keep you on this roller coaster of scares was... It, it kind of rewound you a bit, but just put you somewhere else kind of adjacent to where you were to let you almost sidestep that bit to continue the flow. So I think that's that's kind of cool that developers are realizing that what you want is to be afraid, what you don't want is to die. And despite the fact that they have mechanics that are in place for you to die when you're in the dark for too long and you've got your matches that you're desperately going along with trying to light all these torches, but if you go faster, it blows the match out. So you've got all of that and they know that they don't want you to feel the desperation of death at the same time. So that's pretty cool. Are there, does this go the other way as far as influence? Aside from adaptations and inspirations, obviously, but does, are games influencing film? And do, would we even want that? <laughs> I think, um, I think imagery in certain games definitely defines filmmakers. I There's a game, a film called A Ghost Waits, um, that's not been out. It's been doing the, the sort of festival circuit, and I saw it in Fright Fest, and it, it sort of break down. It breaks down a haunting in a normal house. And I spoke to the director, Adam Stovall, and um, he played a lot of PT, a lot of PT before he made that. And I think the idea, not so much the mechanical nature of games, but I think the imagery, the ideas, the stories, the settings, the sort of suggestion of normality, again, of that relatability is something that I think filmmakers definitely look at because the minute we set foot in certain games, we feel certain ways. And I think that's almost something that filmmakers are probably quite jealous of. It's that moment of us going, oh, I have to go and do that thing. So if they can find that, if they can design the sort of secret sauce, to give us that fear without being in control, that's really, that's that's going to be the challenge. I mean, I was joking, but I was kind of serious when I brought up Bandersnatch. You know, they, they designed that in Twine. They designed the story branching storyline in Twine. And I remember sitting up with a friend, just trying all the different paths and being really freaked out. And it's a bit more of a gimmick, but I think, and then a related franchise, Black Mirror has that episode, um, the VR episode with where the guy goes to test the VR and, you know, it turns into this whole thing. So I think there's probably some penetration, 
Shay, when you played Until Dawn, when you played Until Dawn, did you ever play it again? Did I play it again? Well, so I played it, played the beginning a couple of times because I was playing with so many other people and then I was just like, ah, enough of this. So I went and sat down and like finished the whole thing in one go. I think I went to go and play it again, but I didn't finish it just because I ran out of time. Oh, are you renting it? No. (laughs) But I think that's what's interesting is when you go to replay Until Dawn, you go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see if I could have saved this person. But you don't because all of the moments in between all the set pieces, which are mostly walking in the snow, are tension building. But you want to get through them and you want to push through them. And it's actually the point where it being a film is almost frustrating because the first time around that felt like a proper ride and that felt like your emotions were doing just the right things but actually you just want to get to those bits so it's almost kind of like a movie but less for like you can't you can't fast forward it you have to just do it so it almost suffers from the complete opposite because you want to see it again but you just don't because you can't in a in a sort of in a, any kind of way that gives you your time back yeah because like i'm i'm a big advocate for like not gamifying things but you're totally right in that it, it sits but in that like really that really weird place where yeah like it's emulating a lot of film stuff by you know giving me all of these tension building set pieces but then at the same time i'd love to just fast travel to the next chapter and do it through but then yeah. if i did i'd lose all of that all of the enjoyment um so to speak and yeah i think maybe that's like I guess I'm just putting like two and two together but I think that's probably why I put it down because I was just like oh I just want to get to the bit where all the people start dying and I can save them (laughs) there was a lot of trudging through snow until that bit like a lot of trudging through snow and a lot of red herrings as well because they wanted to keep that sort of oh what will happen but that just became annoying second time around which is a shame because I'd just like to skip to the death please (laughs) (laughs) death please Death. Can I ask you, uh, Luis and Alex, a question? Because I imagine you've both played the Resident Evil remakes, maybe? Uh, two, possibly. but not three. Yeah. Okay. Alex, have you played, I don't know if it's two or three, where they, so like, the, is it Nemesis or whatever, that is like an AI that is walking around? Because we were kind of speculating about that. Like, is the modern generation of horror games getting to like a new thing with, so kind of the problem you were saying, Luis, of going through it again and seeing the same things and, and then dying all the time and it kind of being, boring because you just have to go and do the same thing again which is not scary anymore you know that that idea of that like ai stalking threat thing which kind of like it does that solve the problem of expectation because you could reload you could die and reload and it might play out completely differently you know depending on where you go and and how you do things i think a game in which that's more interesting even than resi which is it does have mr x in two but i think the nemesis in three is apparently a constant sense of kind of frustration that way because it just finds you but a good positive way of that is alien isolation because alien isolation's alien has what's what's it it's there's a special basically there's a special ai in it that means that it will always come to that certain area for you it won't know exactly where you are but it will still find you and apparently it's also programmed to have eyes in the back of its head (laughs) so if you think that you can walk up behind it but just be sneaky you can't because it's been you don't see them but it's got eyes in the back of its head and it knows the hell that you're there so i think that's probably one of the best designed and also cinematic elements as well so it you know that feeds back and forth from your expectations of having watched alien to being able to then play it you wouldn't have felt that fear if you hadn't already watched the movie half of our last episode was samantha greer uh talking about alien isolation oh wow how great okay it is. there you go <laughs> so here's and the, so it's confirmed then the it's confirmed that that's the one yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm interested, do any of you make a differentiation between cheap thrills and deep horror? Deep horror, as I think we're going to coin it now, uh, when deciding what you want to play or watch or even read if they're if uh, CG, you can chime in about scary books. I don't know if that's something that you're... That you're um, yeah, well, I can, that's the only thing I can chime <laughs> in on. So I'll let you guys take the. I totally divide up. I never call it mentally. Like, it really pissed me off when horror kind of started making money in Hollywood and everyone started calling it elevated horror. That was just nonsense because all horror is elevated horror. It can all be smart. You know, Night of the Living Dead and, you know, Dawn of the Dead were all George A. Romero's commentary on societal values. So horror has always been smart. So elevated or deep, no. But I do definitely think, oh, I want something that will be a bit of a guilty pleasure tonight or I want something that's actually going to, you know, harass my soul. <laughs> so you could say like, I mean, I love the fact that all the final destinations are sitting on Amazon Prime. So you can just yeah. watch Total Schlock or you can maybe watch an Ari Aster. So it's nice to have the choice. Harass, harass my soul is now the definition of, <laughs> of quality horror. <laughs> Yeah, I think Final Destination is a really good example of that, especially like the first few. Like I was like, yeah, I want to see someone like get their head stuck in the <laughs> middle of like a lift. And, you know, that that takes me to a very specific place where I'm almost like not not pointing fun at it, but like almost laughing with the movie almost because mm. it knows itself and it knows what it's trying to do. So I can take, you know, I can take some sort of solace in that. Um, and then solace, <laughs> really comforting. just very comforting. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable here. And then that's what, <laughs> that's what the movie's giving me. And then when I was like very much in my, um, my uh my edgelord phase <laughs> like the saw movies were like i was like this is such a deep social commentary where actually humans are terrible and yeah i mean i don't think like that anymore but in and of themselves they did make me think a lot for what like when did those movies come out it's probably like 14 or something probably Early shouldn't have been watching them yeah yeah oh so. i was not 14 <laughs> i won't take my age I mean, I don't, I'm not somebody who, or I should even say I explicitly don't like make a difference between uh, guilty pleasure or something like that. Like it's either you, I, I'm, I feel like I just like it then. If I'm getting pleasure out of it, then I like it. I don't, I don't want to feel guilty about, mm. about something I'm watching or playing or something. I just, it's all in the same sort of spectrum. But then I guess I still would get that. I think I, it's more of a societal thing where you know what we might call sort of cheap thrills or weak horror or something it's just those are things that i'm only going to play as a game or watch as a film on halloween like i'm never going to want to watch that uh i'm never going to get the inkling personally to watch what was it final destination mm. yeah like on in february uh but on saturday night on halloween i would be like yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's get the old, uh, let's get the gang together and <laughs> watch something <laughs> stupid. Uh, because it's, I mean, that's just the fun bit, but you're bringing the other elements of fun. It's not like, it's not Final Destination in and of itself is mm. good. It's the experience that you've created for it to sit there. Mm. I, that's, I guess, my own approach to. And does that play into like the um, do those like external things kind of play into this general um, thing that we keep talking about in terms of like comfort within horror, Louise? Like, is, is it is it those elements is in the external ones or what what particular themes of horror do are com comforting? I think that's the word we used a lot. I think there's there's a lot of different parts of it. And I'll already 
preface this by the fact that if you'd watched my video that I did on Netflix on YouTube of why horror is actually comforting, <laughs> then I talk about um, the the main thing that I find comfort. I think you're right in the fact that it's the association that you have with it of when you maybe first watched it with your friends or there's lots of movies that people talk about when they watch them at a sleepover or I don't know, but like the first time I watched The Craft, I watched it at a sleepover with a bunch of girls and we were all absolutely petrified of it. So the idea of that, I still really enjoy. But I think the, there are sort of many ways that horror can be comforting in the fact that it follows those rules we were talking about and actually like a lot of horror not all horror but lots of horror actually kind of has a happy ending it's just normally for one person <laughs> and that person that person survives and endures and yes they suffer and yes it's miserable but they make it to the sun coming up the next day and I think there's something quite cathartic about that I think there's something very cathartic about horror i think if you look at something like um midsummer which ari aster really describes as he made that as a breakup movie and it's about relationships and the disappointment that other people can be but also feeling loved and feeling together and feeling close with people despite the fact that it's a full of violence and nastiness for some people in that community i think it's almost something that people can find relatable and secure if that makes any sense i think there's definitely a sense of warmth in some of those worlds even if you don't expect there to be is there a value in shock horror itself aside from i mean you talked about sort of you know having or well, even i talked about just having fun watching those kind of shock uh schlocky horrors kind of thing is there are they strictly entertainment or can those feed back into other positives i think there's a distinct i think the fact that so many of them so much of the media we consume does sometimes have nastiness in it and, and i actually think that in a horror environment that's actually the safest place to consume that kind of content because it's purposefully been shelved in the horror section so you know what you're getting you didn't come in unlike my gran who 20 years ago accidentally went to see final destination in the cinema instead of the nice period drama that her and her other friend were meant to go and see they saw final destination i thought this was the english <laughs> so patient the, the expectation was there is you know you're not expecting a grape and getting an olive you know you're going into horror to experience thrills and sometimes violence. And I think in that way, that can be cathartic. So I think shock horror, you can go, oh, yeah, but also, yeah, because I really wanted to watch you get beheaded by that little bit of train that came <laughs> off. Like, I think there's a distinct enjoyment to it that when it's in those places. And I also think horror with the power to shock has to earn its way to do that. So, for instance, I don't particularly like particularly malicious nasty horror that doesn't actually earn its violence because yeah. a lot of quite immature filmmakers think that if i just you know if i just cut this woman's nipple off you'll think it's great and you'll call it horror and actually no i'll find it disgusting and i'll say that your horror movie is terrible and it's because you didn't balance that with any sense of catharsis yeah. or story or purpose so you're not just watching you know, nastiness. I think this actually plays into why I struggle so much with the genre as it's kind of become like codified in our modern times, because I, I've said before that in our other discussions, I really struggle with the idea of realism as like a genre trope or as an, as a viewpoint, because so much of what I see in that kind of shock horror stuff is like, it's a kind of like really filtered down hyper, uh, you know, 
like it's like giving you a high of this feeling of voyeurism and what i struggle with like i'm thinking about shows like uh true blood and game of thrones and all these other shows where it's like there's a i feel like there's a false sort of dogma of you know we if you show it it's more raw and it's more real and it's more powerful so like all of these shows like I remember when I stopped watching True Blood, which is dating me a little bit, but it was when it was like the third or fourth like rape scene thing where uh, vampire Bill like is having sex with his ex-wife and he like twists her head. He's like trying to kill her while he's having sex with her and stuff. And I just think what's interesting, the question about this is like the old avant-garde versus kitsch thing. And it almost reminds me of that Susan Sontag thing we talked about. I don't remember what video that was now, but the, the on camp, like there is a kind of camp that is a, able to lean into what it is and get, kind of revel in what it is in a way that I think is, you're probably right, is comforting. But what I struggle with is sort of like, and this isn't fair, this isn't completely fair to the artists, but like I remember growing up and I remember the way people consumed the Saw films and I remember the way people consumed this kind of like super gory, really intense stuff. And it really like, in in the world that we live in in this like modern world system i i i wonder where it how hard it is to walk that line of like is this like comforting catharsis or is this kind of like the coliseum like it's like the roman coliseum like we're we're banging for blood and we want to see this thing and then if you if you try and criticize it the, the common defense is just like oh you know you can't handle it or like you know you don't want to you don't understand this is what it would really happen but maybe this is an obvious point but so much suspense can be also be created without showing things, you know, you can imply things, you can realize that a character's missing or, you know, you can cut to a different scene or something. So anyway, I just think that that's, that's sort of my, my way into this is like, I think because of all these things that you guys are talking about, that's exactly the thing that drew me away from it. And maybe that's because of my own personal history or whatever, but, uh, yeah, just that, that, that shock value is I struggle with. Yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with just your own personal like how you process empathy almost. Oh, that might be true. Because for a lot of people, obviously, you know, like it's a simple equation of that fear is adrenaline and that adrenaline is fun, like a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a roller coaster is fun because you know you're safe. You're not going to be flying out of the roller coaster. Same with a, watching a film or playing a game. You know you're safe because it's just a film or it's just a game. You're, you have control of the controller or you can stop the game. You can stop the film at any yeah. time. But that, you know, if that's not the case for you, um, my, well, there's some kind of background. What are you trying to say? Reason for that, I guess. You're trying to say way. I'm a snowflake? What are you saying? <laughs> I'm not saying there's a problem with you. <laughs> no. but, so this is my question then. Back is that's all well and good, but then you know if you look at kind of the history of horror as well, just from an outsider's perspective, you can see how much like the figure of the monstrous is always connected to like societal fears. You know, so you have like figure of the other, the fear like dis disability, uh, women, you know, things like that. And so there's a part of it where. I think that's actually a good question. I've never thought about it in those terms about empathy, because that could actually explain a lot of why it's a very personal thing for me. But then what do you do also when it's like, there, there's just more empathetic. Than yeah. Everyone. You're more empathetic <laughs> than everyone. Or, or, or but, but then there's also the aspect of like, you know, everything I think we would all probably agree that is always sort of political from the get go. And what does it mean when you have sort of like horror that's based around that kind of like punching downwards or like a particular figure that is like, you know, you think about like blackness or otherness in like even old horror films where like that was like that was the point kind of was like making this monstrous figure seem really scary to the particular audience they were catering to. So I guess I'm not trying to be a downer here. This is just me processing my thoughts out loud. 
There is a separation of psychologies here with horror films, horror games, and your comfort with it or enjoyment with it or lack thereof, CG. Um, <laughs> you get some who sort of feed off of that adrenaline that causes, well, either enjoyment or anxiety, and that those who become overwhelmed by that anxiety. And it does trickle into sort of the psychiatry of horror. There's evidence of both ends on horror's effect on mental health, both on the negative end. On the negative end, it can simply, you know, amplify someone's anxiety. Uh, very much so for my my wife, who just cannot handle the slightest inkling of <laughs> of horror. You hear just like spooky sound effect, and she leaves the room. <laughs> um, but there's some burgeoning research, I think, on the positive effects with potential exposure therapy. So I'll link an article on Medium about horror films and anxiety, but as well as some other studies on either end of, the, of that spectrum. In the article, a psychiatrist notes, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but horror films can offer a kind of exposure therapy which can be especially helpful for those who suffer from anxiety about anxiety. Maybe more so because horror films aren't typically, uh, aren't typical phobias. You know, you don't, the closest thing maybe being Jaws about shark films or something. The, there's not really a phobia of murderers so much, which is a very obvious uh, trope with horror films. And it's not really a classical psychological phobia. But has horror ever felt helpful to you from a, from a perspective of facing your fear of being in a safe place to confront things that, that are too much for you otherwise? Well, one of my... Um and I feel like I'm putting myself on blast here. Um, <laughs> just, just very vulnerable. But one of my things, uh, I used to be really scared of birds. Um, and it was more like, oh, just like the way they'd flap and stuff. Like it was just, it's just a lot. Like, it's really <laughs> gross, but it's also terrifying. Is that similar to your fear of fruits? That's not a fear. That's just <laughs> an inherent disgust. Um, but uh, with yeah, with birds, everyone was like, "Oh, so have you seen like Hitchcock's birds?" And I was like, "Yeah." Well, I I said yes just to like get them off my back, and then I sat down <laughs> and watched it. But it it was like this comforting thing almost of like me like literally reacting in real time to like the birds flapping around and stuff and i was just like oh my god this is terrible and i was like okay this is this is a safe place for me to do that as opposed to like on the streets of london where a whole <laughs> a whole flock of pigeons would like fly up and i'd be like ah! and then do that and like embarrass myself in front of a group of people so there, there's that like that experience that i have with that sort of like you know safe space confronting of my fears what about you louise um i don't think I've ever had quite the same sort of feeling of my fears being seen, but I do feel like when I watched i when I watched um, Midsummer, I'd just been through a miserable breakup. I thought you were going to say you were just got out of a cult. <laughs> I'd also, you know, I did. <laughs> you're in a cult, call your dad. But no, I um, I watched that feeling feeling broken, and I saw broken on screen, and I felt better for seeing broken on screen of being. Um, Florence Pugh was that had this this wonderful performance of someone who was just suffering through life. And there was one scene where she went into the toilets of a plane. She'd been sitting normally. She went to the toilets of a plane. She just fell to bits. And suddenly when you're looking at that and you're like, I see 
some you know it's nice to see someone that is also feeling a bit like you and not really coping but also hiding it from people and i think that the rest of that movie and i won't be spoilery but i think the rest of that movie is a real catharsis for that and it almost to a cartoony degree but i definitely felt like yeah. i felt seen by that film in a way that people probably judge me for feeling seen by midsummer but i definitely it definitely sort of reflected things back at me. And even on a sort of lighter note, like um, The Haunting of Bly Manor, I loved and watched and cried over and I didn't feel it particularly terrifying, but I certainly felt like um, it was doing that incredible thing of these are about people who have brought their own ghosts to a house that are not necessarily real ghosts, but they're certainly real to them. And I think there's definitely something about us being reflected, especially in ghost stories, Um that is actually a really healthy way to process and reflect our own feelings. I think I've personally used horror films that I know, I mean, this, I guess, is this cross crosses over in genres where of films that sort of make you feel anxious, um, where maybe something like a, off the top of my head example, like Uncut Gems is a very anxious film, a very tense film. I think I've used those films before as almost a bucket for anxiety, where um i'm generally i think a i would not going to say carefree person but i don't have um i don't always have like anxiety probes or ways to get rid of my anxiety and i think it's similar in a way of sometimes when if you watch a sad film and it's not even that sad but you just like fuck it i'm crying <laughs> you know and it's just that you you take everything that you've been holding on to and just let's let's dump it here in the same way of watching a uh a film that might make you really anxious like well yeah let's just spew out all my anxiety that i had built up over the last month and and use this as a bucket um which feels i mean i guess it's sort of what maybe the uh psychiatrist was getting at as far as it's a way it could be a way to treat things people who are have high anxiety of anxiety where you know it's it's treating that you can't just maybe not expose yourself to a specific thing but you can expose yourself to anxiety to to start working on ways to deal with that internally through this uh this other medium i guess i'm gonna ask about the inverse though about being scarred by scaries i've got one go on i was too young for um uh the sixth sense <laughs> and you saw uh, it yesterday did you really no i oh. said you saw it yesterday <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, it was, um, there's just a really tense bit where there's a a ghost, a dead person walking through the house and all you see is their feet and it is super duper creepy and I just had to c completely shut off the film, leave the room and didn't return to it for probably a decade. Oh <laughs> God. Yeah. All because of some feet. Damn. Just some feet. Uh, that'll do it that'll do it have i been scarred by anything i don't um maybe like rosemary's baby i probably saw that like way too way too young it's but just the setting of that yeah, it's like, a very it's, atmospheric slow yeah, yeah. slow burning type of film even now thinking about it, i'm like oh god yeah because it doesn't even really you're not even sure if you're supposed to be scared until mm. an hour in it's yeah it's that it's my mind sort of filling in all the blanks i think that yeah just again as a teenager probably shouldn't have been watching it but yeah has has really stuck with me i wouldn't say scarred but do yeah. you think though that there's that that even that scarring 
which is maybe a harsh word to use, but does that, can that turn into bravery? I mean, there's all this, you know, conversation that Kit, you know, talking about watching it too young, but does you think that prepares you in any way? I mean, I'm mm. still a scaredy cat, so I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I watched yeah. uh, Misery a while, a long time ago. That's the, based on, is that Stephen King? I worked in a homeless shelter in Chicago at the time, and it was a very high-stress environment. It was, like, direct off the, you know, getting people off the street and helping them in. And there was limited slots every night, and so not everyone was able to get in. It was always very, very emotional and intense. And it was mostly young people, and it's all kinds of, you know, fights, and things happened there. And it was, all, you know, I still have trauma from that place, you know, <laughs> from years later. But uh, we used to watch, we would put on movies, like, whenever we had them. And there was, it was in the basement of this church. And so there was one TV that we had like on the wall and usually the kids would bring like really, really schlocky films. And I would try and get out of the room to be like, Oh, I'd switch my colleague. Like I'll go, I'll go fold some blankets or something in the, in the storage room. Cause I don't want to watch, like, I'm just trying to think some anime, you know, high school vampire show or something. So I ended up, they ended up having misery one time and I saw the name of it and I was like, oh, what is this going to be some other one of these like exploitative horror thing? I don't want to see this. But then I had to be assigned to that, that room that night and I ended up getting really engrossed in it. And that was actually an example of like, I think that was one of the first chips in the chinks in the armor kind of, of, of allowing me to consider that maybe I could see more of this genre because I love the premise because it was so maybe for me when it's more like psychological, because it was mostly just about this woman being really, really creepy towards this guy and like not letting him leave his house. And it only really gets violent towards the end. Um, but I think also the fact that he's a writer and I was actually thinking to your previous question, uh, I'm saying all this about being a scaredy cat, but I've tried to have my hand at writing, haven't gotten published. So it's either not good or I'm a hidden genius, but uh, all the stuff that I've written is it's like speculative fiction kind of stuff, but I don't know why, but it's all extremely macabre. It's like very, very dark. And like, it often has like violence and like horror type stuff in it, but I never, I've never gone into it thinking I want to make like a horror thing. Like it just maybe speaking to your point of like, whatever, I, how I'm dealing with empathy and anxiety and the way I understand the world, this felt like the most appropriate form for me to like get those feelings out onto paper because when I've shown it to people, like you guys know me, like I, I tend to joke around and I don't, you know, I don't like watching scary stuff. But then I show it to people and they're like, like, why are people like, why are they carving up each other's corpses? What is this? I'm like, Ooh, sorry about that. Didn't warn you that it was a bit. Uh... So I think you, you might be onto something there. Louise, do you have any experiences with horror, maybe too young? Um, it sounds really silly, but I, I used to love um, Roald Dahl and I still do love Roald Dahl and I love the Book of the Witches. And when I was in, I think it was primary three or primary four, the teacher wheeled in the giant VCR on wheels and put the witches on on VHS. And we were all absolutely petrified. And I'm still afraid of that movie. And now I understand why I'm afraid of that movie. And it's because it's directed by the director of Don't Look Now. <laughs> You know, the director of Don't Look Now made a British seaside holiday from hell as a little boy and his grandmother were basically emotionally and manipulated and then horrifically, you know, scarred and turned into a mouse by an evil Angelica Houston, who was kind of like half sexy, but also half hideous. So Probably like, scary. And the special effects are super gnarly in that as well. They're really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's all Jim Henson stuff, Whatever. isn't it? It's great. 
Yeah, I do wonder if there's maybe a wider conversation about like the effects of of enduring these things at a young age, if you can call it enduring. I guess it's not exactly it's not exactly struggling or suffering through your life, but what that kind of what that can do to you. I remember when I was ten. Uh, playing Age of Empires for the first time, and it's actually one of my most vivid gaming memories. I never played um, I never played an RTS before with that amount of realism. I'd played you know uh, Warcraft games and stuff, but the scale of the bloodshed in that game, for seeing it for the first time and actually seeing the bloody battlefields after an encounter, I think did scar me then. Um, I distinctly remember like having trouble sleeping. The night of playing that after I like I turned it off. I think I even have like I have a screenshot in my brain of like when I was like, this is too much. And I think it's the most like a strange prepubescent moment of clarity <laughs> of like of I remember thinking to myself, Am I too young for this game? <laughs> uh but I think Mom, that that, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I've decided I'm too <laughs> young for this game here. Uh but it did feel like reflecting on that, I felt like a learning experience on the horrors of war. And I wonder if that sort of planted a seed of empathy. And if I get big brain about it sort of affected like my later views on politics and stuff, I don't know. But I always, I, yeah, I think about that all the time. So last thing I want to talk about a little bit, a little bit of fun. What horror films would make great games? What do we want to see? We can take half Rear an hour window. to think about it and then <laughs> Rear window as Pokemon Snap. Whoa. Done. I solved Nintendo. it. Get I solved the problem. Moving did, on. Did CG just win the game? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's not really it doesn't I'm not really playing the game because that's would be very cute. <laughs> uh but you could make it scary, I think, if you do the whole vibe of rear window, right? Like it's it's like fatal frame. Yeah. slowly uncovering no but fatal frame is still kind of like it's still kind of silly in a way where i don't know just the aesthetic of that game feels not serious where rear window feels very serious mm. and very like slow burning and i think you could probably you could probably i mean you wouldn't call it rear window but pokemon snap <laughs> you would still call it something else and give it a uh give it a an atmosphere i mm. think it could work could Slacks be a game? Slacks could be a game, but what I was thinking, because I read there's been a massive spate of, especially around Halloween, of Halloween haunt movies gone wrong. So there's Hell House LLC, where people try and run this scare attraction and it goes wrong. There's one called Hellfest about this group of attractive uh, youths that go to a um, theme park and are then picked off. Even though it's a scary night, they get picked off by a serial killer. There's one called Haunt as well. So I think I'd actually like, maybe in the style of Until Dawn, a Halloween horror house gone wrong because you would never know what was meant to be real and what was actually, you know, just there to scare you. So I think that would lend itself really well. Oh, that's good. That's right. I, I mean, you, anytime <laughs> Until Dawn is mentioned, I'm like, I'm back. I'm like, yes, You're in. I'm in. Um, I think I'd want to see something really almost psychedelic in a way. I'm thinking of like really early Japanese horror, like 1920 stuff, like Page of Madness with some like funky, not even funky, but it's sort of like creepy jazz in the background. And then like you, there's all these creepy images jazz. that you don't know what you're going, what you're, what, if what you're seeing is 
you know some hallucination or if it's uh or if it's something you can interact with or game i don't know what kind of narrative this would be but i think it'd be really um be more of a vibe right <laughs> be more of a, a vibe i'm into that i'm into that already i don't think i have um i don't think i have anything off the top of my head that i'm like yeah that would that would work that would work no. get the design doc out <laughs> we'll workshop it <laughs> i wonder if people are making horror games in dreams oh yeah there's a whole halloween yeah. halloween <laughs> halloween <laughs> there's a whole halloween you out american yourself there halloween <laughs> Come on down to Halloween. <laughs> Finish the show. The scariest place on earth. You can buy a gun anywhere. Just over there in the corner store. Just go. Candy Halloween. and guns in the same place. <laughs> yeah, there's a Halloween update on dreams. <laughs> Probably. Okay. Yeah, so that's it, I think. Louise, um... <laughs> Louise, thank you so much for... Um, thank you for having me. For, for being on and uh, entertaining the... The likes the, of us. The <laughs> likes of us, the sudden yeah. Americanisms that came from nowhere. <laughs> um, yeah, where can people find you and like what are you what are you up to? What are you doing on the internet? Uh people can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon, which was the username that I picked a long, long time ago and wish I didn't have to say out loud, but it was a tenacious D reference when I was oh, literally cool. 17. So yeah. But shiny underscore demon, you can see my uh all my bits on horror i've been doing a month of horror recommendations called scaring is caring so if you're looking for 31 horror not uh horror recommendations then i have you know where taken to come. note of those and i'm so ready for halloween day itself um yeah that's great thank you so much for coming in coming in coming on and sharing all of your horror expertise i learned a lot i feel um i feel educated my my smooth brain has gotten a workout if you want to harass our souls comment directly under this youtube video uh if you're listening you can email us at community at glasshouse.games tweet us at ghg show you can watch more of our stuff uh on youtube anywhere else audio visions audio visions audio versions are on your favorite podcast app thank you shay alex cg and special guest louise for joining me this week thanks as well as always to kit for making it happen that's all from halloween <laughs> dnc parks for the music if you're enjoying our content and want to see some special content we're producing for patreon first you can find us in the link below or at patreon.com slash glasshouse media i'm alex b talk to you soon